super often frankly if I'm being honest because it's quite hard in my opinion to fill 30 to 40 minutes of space by myself um I think I'm just so used to having conversations I don't know how people have podcasts where they post once a week for years and every episode is solo I commend them um but I do have some more thoughts to share and it's been a couple months since my last one so here we are my uh, partner and I were playing with our dog, Guava, best dog in the world recently. And we were playing that game where the dog is on the bed and your hand or your feet are under the covers. And you're, no, you're like scratching them around or whatever and the dog is getting excited and grabbing it or whatever and then you stop and the dog doesn't know what's going on. And my partner was like, I don't understand. How does she not? know that it's our hand how does she not know it's our feet like we just had them out and then we put them under the covers you know what I mean and um so I mansplained to him as I often do (laughs) I'm a bit of a problem with that um I mansplained about object permanence right and I'm gonna mansplain to you now um so for those of you who don't know object permanence is something that affects like babies and and animals and involves you know understanding that an item and uh, people still exist even when you can't see or hear them right so for example a, a baby is playing with a rattle and it drops it and it starts the baby starts crying and it's of course because it's upset that the rattle has dropped but to the baby the rattle is gone it takes us um you know, almost up to a year to understand object permanence, maybe longer actually. And so when you take something away, it is gone to them. And, you know, that's why you can play peekaboo and why you can put things behind your back and and do all those things. And as we get older, we start to understand that just because we can't see something doesn't mean it doesn't exist, right? And I started thinking about how this works in relationships and like emotional permanence, right? And our our anxiety around that. And this idea that some people never kind of grow out of that mentality. Like they don't understand object permanence. When it comes to relationships, when it comes to emotions, when it comes to people, it's like we can rationalize and understand object permanence as it relates to tangible objects, but it becomes lost on us in regards to emotion and affection And that's something that I've dealt with a lot, especially when I was younger and I was a little more insecure, I think. And I'm going to be honest, I felt really intelligent for having this thought. And I was like, wow, my God, emotional object permanence. Let's talk about it. And then as, you know, as these things go, I did some digging and it's like a pretty popular research topic amongst relationship psychologists. (laughs) There are no more original thoughts Or I tell myself that to make myself feel better about not having them. No. Um, It's still so interesting to me, to be honest. Um, You know, when we're infants and we start to learn that things can in fact still exist, even when we can't see them, it affects us psychologically. And this is, it, it, it almost feels like it's in the same vein as attachment styles, right? Like babies who understand that a person exists, even when they are not present, are better able to form secure attachments with caregivers. And then that ability helps them form secure relationships throughout their life. So for babies who are not cuddled enough or, you know, 
didn't form deep and very engaging bonds with parents or parental figures growing up might have a harder time with emotional object permanence because they weren't able to form those secure attachments. They weren't able to understand this person is going to come back. And then when they get older, somebody leaves, somebody's, you know, having a bad week, not showing up for them emotionally in the same way they did the week previously, they start to panic. Well, the affection is gone. Well, the love is gone. Well, the relationship is over versus understanding just because I can't see it right now, just because I don't feel it right this second, doesn't mean it's gone forever. And it is so interesting how the way that we are raised and our relationships with our parents affect our adult relationships so strongly, right? So if you don't form secure attachments as a child in relationships, it's often a predictor of feelings of safety and security, right? It's a relationship model of object permanence and that our healthiest selves should allow ourselves to still feel seen and safe and loved even when a partner is not by your side, even when a partner is not consistently validating you, even when a partner, it's like one thing that really made me think about this on a deeper level was I used to do this thing when I was younger. I shouldn't say when I was younger because it makes me sound like I haven't acted like this in the past five years. But like, in my opinion, there's a huge difference in your emotional maturity between like 24 and 29 in my opinion I'm a completely different person I'm a completely different partner and I can handle things a lot differently um within those five years it's just a lot has changed but my point is I used to do this thing I feel like a lot of particularly hetero women do this where I'd say do you still love me (laughs) right like constantly to partners do you still love me do you love me you think I'm pretty from one to ten how much do you love me and, you know, with more patient partners, it was like cute and funny and not a big deal. With less patient partners, it was kind of annoying to them. <laughs> I, I took that really personally when I was younger. And now I look back and I'm like, yeah, that was probably pretty annoying. Um, but to me, that was such an obvious through line to an insecure attachment style, right? And this idea that if my partner isn't saying it all the time to me, if my partner's being quiet, even if it's because they're sick or working or busy or just feeling quiet, I needed that validation. I was constantly begging for that validation. And I think for a while, I'm, I'm very stubborn. I still am very stubborn in my relationships, just ask my partner. Um, I think for a while... I'd get really annoyed and upset when a partner would be impatient about that. They'd be like, why are you always asking that? And I'd be like, well, it's not a big deal. Like, it just takes two seconds. And I think as I'm getting older, I'm realizing how it almost like invalidated the times that they did do it, right? Because it was like, why do I need to constantly show you this? Do you not believe me? Like, do my actions, I'm here, right? I'm sitting next to you. You know, whatever the case is, we live together. We have a dog together. I've chosen you as my partner. I have told you before that I love you and nothing has really changed, you know, unless there was some big predictor that the relationship was ending or they were, you know, acting inappropriately or poorly toward me. There was really no reason for me to be consistently needing that validation. And I can absolutely see how it was sort of annoying to partners. And not only that, but sort of offensive. Um, Sorry, boys. (laughs) And then kind of got me down a rabbit hole of 
how this idea of object constancy and emotional object permanence correlates with attachment styles, right? Because I, you know, I said it earlier, I think I might have called it insecure attachment style, but obviously I meant anxious attachment style. And it makes sense, right? Oh, I constantly need validation from my partner and I'm second guessing their feelings toward me. Um, it feels pretty low hanging fruit that that would coincide with an anxious attachment style, which I, I used to have. I had a really hard time with that growing up, um, relating a lot to my childhood and the way I was raised, which is for another episode or maybe for this episode. Who knows? Who knows where we're going here? Um, but then I went down this rabbit hole with avoidant attachment styles and this idea that object constancy, which while can be needing validation from a partner when you're not getting enough of it, when you're not seeing it, when you're not getting that emotional validation, can also manifest in this way of fearing losing someone so much that it actually affects your ability to bond with them, right? Um, And this idea that if somebody falls short or disappoints you or upsets you, that you need to just cut them out of your life and you need to be completely unemotional and not invest any time in them. And how much that actually more aligns with and avoidant attachment style, right? I feel like I see that a lot with avoidant attachment styles and this idea that they don't necessarily don't want a relationship. I feel like a lot of times with avoidant attachment styles, we correlate those uh, attachment styles with like fuck boys, right? With uh, people who are emotionally unavailable, people who want to just fuck around. And it's so much more nuanced than that. I think it's, it's so easy to kind of be like, well, people who have an anxious attachment style, are insecure and needy and codependent and they love relationships. And people who have an avoidant attachment style are fuckboys and they're awful and they don't want relationships and they're like perpetual bachelors and they want to be single for the rest of their life. It's so, so much more layered than that. And I feel like I know so many people who are avoidant attachment styles and they want love and they want to be in a relationship and they just, it's hard for them and that's okay. In the same way that it's like hard for people who have anxious attachment styles to let go of that control, right? And let go of that insecurity and love themselves enough to understand that it's okay if somebody rejects you or that if somebody doesn't want to spend all their time with you or whatever the case. Um, But anyways, yeah, it was, it's interesting because, you know, there's this idea of object permanence and needing validation and needing constant emotional validation. And then there's this idea of just completely rejecting it and how that can still coincide with object constancy and how there's this idea that well, they fall short. They're out. I'm done. They are not my person. They're not somebody I want in my life. I think that it's worth looking into if you know that you have an avoidant attachment style and you find yourself constantly being disappointed by people and cutting people out very quickly from your life. Um, maybe you, you know, draw out fights. You know, you cut people off. You get cold immediately. And... I urge you to maybe dig deep within and say, is this something where this person needed to be cut out? Am I setting a healthy boundary? Or am I feeling a deep pain because I believe that someone isn't showing up for me? And instead of facing maybe a fear of abandonment head on, I'm avoiding it altogether. So in the same way that somebody who deals with object constancy in an anxious way 
and feeling like this person doesn't love me enough because I don't see it. It can affect people who have avoidant attachment styles in this idea that you can't have disagreements with loved ones. You can't have loved ones fall short or fuck up without immediately going to this idea that they are no longer welcome in your life, that they are not worthy or that they don't love you enough to be part of your life. And so you avoid it altogether. And it's so unhealthy, right? We talk about this sometimes in these very casual ways. Oh, I have an you know anxious attachment style. I'm so crazy. I just like want to be loved. And like, oh, I'm so avoidant, right? Like I'm, I'm just like emotionally unavailable. I don't know. <laughs> it's crazy. And it's it's okay, right, to make jokes about that stuff. But it's also so heartbreaking in how it affects our dating and how it affects the way that we interact with loved ones and the way that we're able to like form and keep really deep, amazing relationships if we're able to kind of just get past all of this shit. And I know it's easier said than done. Um, but I feel like I know so many people who are just don't want to admit that they have problems. I feel like I recently was talking to someone and they were talking about how their ex-partner thinks that they're the bad guy because they broke up with them, right? Because they didn't want to be with them. And their partner's immediate reaction to being rejected was, well, you need therapy. And this is very common, right? It's like, well, something must be wrong with you if you don't want to be with me. There's no way that this is out because of me. There's no way that this is because you just fell out of love, which is extremely valid. There has to be something wrong with you. I think a lot of times people have a really hard time with rejection when there's not a very specific catalyst, right? Like if your partner just breaks up with you genuinely because they're like, this relationship isn't feeding me anymore, but you actually didn't do anything wrong. This just isn't a right fit. That is so hard. Oh my God, it is so hard for people to wrap their head around and they'll validate their feelings of anger and rejection in any way. And a lot of times that manifests in like, well, you're, there's something wrong with you. You you have, an, you have an avoidant attachment style. You have commitment issues. You're a fuck boy. You just want to go around and be single. You just want to, it's, it's okay for somebody to just not want to be with you. And a lot of times I notice that the people that end up being rejected in that situation whose instant reaction is you need to go to therapy often haven't seen a therapist themselves. I find that so often that the one person in a relationship who is really pushing therapy um, is doing it selfishly. I hate to say that. I shouldn't say often, but I notice, I do notice it a lot. A lot of times it's this selfish thing of like, well, there has to be something wrong with you if you don't want to be with me and you need to go figure that out with a therapist. Versus saying, well, why am I taking this rejection so poorly? Why am I having a hard time understanding that somebody simply just doesn't want to be with me? And why am I having a hard time respecting that boundary? And why am I not only victimizing myself? Because you're not a victim just because somebody doesn't want to be with you. That's their own thing. Doesn't doesn't mean you did anything wrong. Doesn't mean you're less lovable. Um, But also, why am I demonizing them? And I've, I have had such a hard time with this. I take things so personally. Um, and so every time that I've been rejected, I kind of have these, these dual, you know, people in my mind screaming and one is saying, fuck this person. There's something wrong with them because you, I, I haven't done anything wrong, right? I haven't done anything wrong. It's like they must be fucked up. They must be, you know, they must have a problem with commitment. And then there's this other side of me that's like, what did you do? What the fuck did you do? What could you have possibly done to have like ruined this relationship? And it's like, 
but neither of those things have to be true. Like sometimes relationships just end. Sometimes people just fall out of love. And I know that sounds so shitty, but there is not always bigger meaning. And there's not always commitment issues at play. And there's not always foul play at play. Um, sometimes it's just not a right fit. And if you find yourself in a situation like that, and you cannot accept that it was just not a right fit, that this person just didn't want to be with you, and that it doesn't mean that you did anything wrong, and that it doesn't mean that they did anything wrong, maybe I urge you to ask yourself why. If you have found yourself urging partners to see a therapist and you haven't seen one yourself, I would urge you to see one. A lot of times people think that you need a big catalyst to see a therapist, and I think that's not true. And I think a lot of times people I know who have not had a catalyst and see a therapist end up having these huge breakthroughs because they go in thinking, oh, I, I don't need this. Maybe somebody told me to or, you know, we live in a culture right now where we're really urging people to see therapists for no for no specific reason. Right. Just to kind of, you know, keep the wheels running, keep the uh, keep the machine well oiled and they end up having these huge breakthroughs of like, oh, my God, this has been what's wrong or this has been an issue for me or this is a recurring theme in my life that's affecting me negatively. I, I personalize things so often. It's really, really hard for me to accept that everybody has their own shit and not everything has deeper meaning. And then the worst part is when you don't get to the root of those problems, when you don't get to the root of why rejection is so hard for you, you end up seeking that rejection. I did this so often back in the day. Um, where it's like you get rejected and then you almost start feeding off of it. It almost becomes addictive, right? To go for these, we talk, you know, obviously this is kind of like a recurring theme in relationships, right? That a lot of times specifically for like heterosexual young women, they will go for fuck boys, right? Bad boys, whatever. There's, it's a huge, you know, recurring theme in relationships. And it, there is science behind that. There is a scientific reason why emotionally unavailable people or people who simply don't want to date you or people who have rejected you feel so addictive. And the short answer is our brains get most excited when we receive rewards in an unpredictable way. Um, and this kind of even goes back to object permanence, right? And never feeling like we're getting exactly what we need as much as we need it. And so we end up feeling addicted to this need for validation. And we constantly are asking, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Right? So there was this famous study by a psychologist. And basically, imagine two pigeons in cages, right? And each pigeon has a cage and each cage has a lever. Every time pigeon one presses its lever, it gets food. Every single time. That system is called continuous reinforcement. And for the first few minutes, every time pigeon two presses its lever, it also gets food. But then something changes with pigeon two. Now the pigeon has to press the lever five times to get a piece of food. And sometimes it goes back to one time. And sometimes it goes, you know, to five times. Sometimes it's nine times, 12 times. Now that is random or partial reward schedule. And so with that reward schedule, the second bird becomes obsessed with pressing the lever versus the first bird who always knows that they're going to get a reward and is kind of chill about it, Right. And then when the experimenters cut off food for both of the birds, the first bird quickly just stops pressing the lever. But the second bird, it's pressing the lever until it literally collapsed from fatigue. And that's how strong 
random reward schedules are, right? You get addicted because you never know what's going to happen. And that goes back to dating. That goes back to love and relationships, right? The thrill that you get from not knowing if someone is interested or when they're going to text you. Partial reward, right? It's a lot more exciting than the person who makes it extremely clear that they're interested and follows up and makes plans. That consistent behavior though, it's dem- it's that anybody I know who displays consistent emotional behavior with partners is very secure. They're healthy, they're ripe for sustainable long-term relationships. But you find yourself rejecting those. You want that thrill of not knowing what you're going to get. Sometimes you don't even realize you're doing it. I, of course, didn't realize I was doing it. And that makes sense, right? I'm not like 21 years old and dating fuckboys and being like, oh, there's my uh, pesky partial reward system acting up again. But it's so true. It's so absolutely true. So in those situations, you know, just tell yourself you're not a pigeon, you know? (laughs) I'm not a pigeon. Um... I had a friend recently, very close male friend of mine, who is incredibly smart, but also uh, can be sort of pessimistic. Maybe pessimistic isn't the right word. Uh, very realistic in a way that maybe comes off negative sometimes. And, and they even said this. And they brought up this interesting point about how in this day and age, in this world with technology and constant validation from the internet and dating apps and getting everything we want as soon as we want it, instant validation. Um, It's impossible to not have an addiction, essentially. This was their thought process. I'm not saying it's, you know, right or wrong, but it was so interesting because they were like, we only see, you know, quote unquote addictions when they're so obvious when they're right in front of our face, right? Whether that's a love addiction or a substance abuse addiction, And those addictions can actually manifest in these really little ways, right? I mean, we're talking about one right now with the partial reward system. That's an addiction. It's an addiction to unhealthy relationships. Um, And some people have unhealthy addictions to attention, addictions to conflict, right? Fighting and controversy. A lot of times I find that people will consistently pick fights with partners because it validates them in some way. That, you know, hit of dopamine when you're fighting because you feel validated because this person has strong feelings and they're yelling and that means, oh, they must love me. And I'm sure a lot of that goes back to childhood too. But this idea that we all suffer from some addiction and how you almost, in this day and age with, you know, everything going on in the world and technology and growing up on social media, you, you can't really get out unscathed. And it's kind of made me think more now when I find myself indulging in unhealthy behavior, whether that's with my partner or really in any other way in life, am I feeding into an addiction? And then trying to understand where that addiction comes from, which I think is always kind of step one. And then how do I work toward breaking that addiction, which is the harder part and step two. Um, And sometimes that requires a therapist And sometimes that just requires taking time to yourself and fully understanding, you know, why you do it and what the triggers are and how to avoid it in a way that's healthy, in a way where you still feel, you know, fulfilled and social and happy and healthy and whatever the case is. So I've been very aware of my own personal vices and addictions lately. And all this to say, it's like, well, not all to say, I'm kind of going on a bunch of tangents today. So just bear with me. Um, We're so hard on each other. 
we are so hard on ourselves, but we're so hard on like romantic partners. It's like we demand unconditional love. And I've talked about this on the podcast before, but I can't stand the idea of unconditional love. I think it's really unhealthy. I, my love has conditions, <laughs> you know, I have conditions. I have boundaries. I have things that if you do, I will not date you anymore. I will not be with you. Will the love always be there on some level maybe, but you can do things to consistently disrespect my boundaries, disrespect me, hurt me, hurt people I love. And I will choose to not be with you anymore and eventually not love you. It's condition. I have conditions. My love is conditional. And I, this idea of unconditional love of the right partner will be perfect and they'll get you and they'll understand you on a deep level and you won't fight anymore. It won't be hard anymore is bullshit. Real love, mature love is conditional. It's built on mutual respect. It's built on clear boundaries that are respected. It's built on clear communication. And frankly, it's built on a lot of self-love and a lot of, you know, I love you, but if you disrespect me, if you hurt me, if I am not my best self with you, if even in hard times, there is no room for growth, there's no room for change, there is no self-awareness and understanding that we are both going to fuck up and that's okay, I will not be with you. That's okay. That's healthy. I think for me, it's like if you want to be a better lover, if you want to be a better partner, if you want to have better relationships, you need to let go of some of these romantic assumptions, right? There's one person for me, my soulmate will find me and then it will be easy. Uh, but a big one uh, that I find myself struggling with and maybe we'll catch some flack for saying is the assumption that we're good people, right? <laughs> uh, I saw this video recently about how like not everyone should like you. If someone is liked by everyone, I find that weird. It's inauthentic. It's fake. If nobody hates you, you are not being your truest self. And it's so true. It's like that one person you know who like is friendly with everyone, who gives out compliments like a fucking t-shirt gun at a basketball game, right? It's like they walk up to every new girl and they're like, oh my God, you're so pretty. I hate that, honestly, because it cheapens it. It cheapens it for me when you like everyone and everyone likes you and, you know, it just you should want enemies, you know? You shouldn't want everyone to be your friend. You should see how some people live their life and treat others and say, hey, I don't fuck with that. And I'm not going to allow it. Uh, I feel like I've seen that a lot lately with like some situations in my life where like someone was treated really poorly and everyone in their circle and scene knows it, continues to fuck with those people because it's like easier to be nice. It's easier to not make an enemy. It's easier to not say no. It's so fucking lame. It's so lame to need everyone to like you. And even with your own authenticity, like it goes back to what I was saying, like it's okay to be kind of a piece of shit. And that's what this video was talking about. Like it's okay to be a piece of shit sometimes. I'm a piece of shit. I am. We all are because we're human, right? It goes back to relationships and that, you know, accepting that you are not always a good person um, for the greater good of your interpersonal relationships, accepting that you are an emotionally complicated, deeply corrupt, sometimes very flawed person. And anyone who chooses to be with you is going to have problems on their hands. <laughs> That's being human. Mutual recognition in each other's flaws and giving each other grace and patience. 
And it's hard, right? Because we want to portray ourselves as perfect and normal. And we're not. We are not normal. Is, does, is anyone that you know, like anyone that you know really, really well, like anyone you know super deeply, your best friend, your partner of years and years, are they normal? Are they like not inherently flawed and like weird and like fuck kind of fucked up? Like, no. The only people who you like perceive as like great and awesome and normal are people you honestly don't know very well. And I think sometimes it's really hard to give room for that in relationships. Um... And of course, that all goes back again to childhood, right? And how we were shown love or how we were not shown love. All of our relationships with our parents are complicated on some level. Um, and that complication inevitably seeps into our adult relationships. You know, we end up looking for the same complications in emotional partners. And I think that as humans, we have an instinct to repeat, right? It feels safe and that's an unlearning and that's an unlearning that I'm really trying to work on all the time in my relationships. Um, even in friendships, I notice it comes out a lot. So yeah, I'm in my pretentious era right now and reading a lot of like critical theory and philosophy and um, Kierkegaard talks about how he has this really great quote. I'm not going to say the whole thing, but he talks about how um, like you're going to marry the wrong person, right? <laughs> you're going to regret marrying whoever you marry. Uh, you're going to regret dating whoever you date. You're going to regret everything you do in life. You're going to regret getting married. You're going to regret not getting married. You're going to regret standing up for what's right. You're going to regret staying silent. It's the human condition. Anyways, that's where I'm going to end this episode. <laughs> this episode on, I don't even know. I don't know how I'm going to title this. So I hope you enjoyed it. If you like these solo episodes um, where I'm sort of just following a train of thought, let me know because you know, there aren't comments, unfortunately, on Apple Podcasts. So I'm not really sure how people enjoy specific episodes. But I like doing them because, you know, back to us being a piece of shit. I love hearing myself talk. I can be wildly pretentious. <laughs> That's why I have a podcast. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed this. If you did, please leave it a good rating. Um, it really helps me out to rate the show, whether you listen to it on Spotify or Apple Music or wherever else you listen to it. Share it with a friend. Post it on Instagram validate me please please um i'll talk to you guys later <laughs> okay bye without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running everything would suddenly stop hospitals factories schools and power plants they all depend on you no matter the weather emergency or time of day you're the ones who get it done at granger we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.